Alexa Curtis here, and you're listening to This Is Life Unfiltered. This is episode 80. So before I get into the rest of the podcast and the most amazing guest I have on for episode 80, I want to thank you guys for supporting this podcast, for letting me know and continuing always to submit who you want to hear on the podcast, as well as your personal stories. I get so much joy out of reading them, whether it's for Fearless Every Day or whether it's for This Is Life Unfiltered. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. So if you guys haven't checked out our social media, make sure to follow the podcast Instagram which is at T-I-L-U podcast. And it's also on Twitter for the same username. And you can subscribe directly to the podcast on iTunes as well as most streaming platforms. So today I've got two guests. Well, I've got one main guest and I've got one co-host. So one of my best friends, Alex, a lot of you guys have reached out about her on social media. She is back from San Francisco. She lives in LA and she is one of my best friends. And I'm so excited to have her introduced our guest for episode 80. So I want to introduce you guys to Allison Kay. She is the president of SB Projects. Most of you know Scooter Braun, and she's also a partner at Ithaca Holdings. She's going to be much better at explaining herself, but she has done so many things across the board. She represents some of the biggest talent pretty much in the world, and she's also originally from Connecticut, which is where I'm from. So Alex, thank you for doing this with me. Thank you. And Allison, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, take us through the beginning of how you got into entertainment and your childhood. Okay. So I grew up in Bethany, Connecticut. Um, My parents still live in the same house that I was brought home to from the hospital. Um, Very, like, I feel like growing up, I only thought that you could be like a doctor or a lawyer, or in my case, I wanted to be Vanna White, like not her job, but actually her and thought I was going to like turn letters on Wheel of Fortune. It was that or like, a. I also really wanted to check things out at the supermarket. So self-check has been like a fulfillment (laughs) of that dream. So I can move on to other things. Um, And I... Don't think I really ever figured out what I wanted to do until I was doing it. I I went to Lehigh for undergraduate. Um, turned out to be really good at poli sci, so chose that as my major. And then when you pick that as your major, they tell you that your choice is then to go to law school. So, like, it happened to be that I was very good at the LSAT. Like, if there's a test that I was born to take, it is the LSAT. Um, and so I went to Duke for law school. And then... My second year of law school, I went to go do, they basically, usually at the top 50 schools, all the different firms come to you to do your interviews. And so I sat through, you basically submit your resume, you click off the cities you want to work for, you could possibly want to work in. And they, the firms like pick based on your grades and your, your resume, who they want to have in. And I feel like I did eight interviews a day for three weeks at a clip and was flying back to New York every day to do another callback interview. Um, And I was finally ready to accept an offer at a firm. And I went to the firm and did the whole like summer associates dinner reception thing. And then I watched all the junior associates leave the dinner and go back to the office. And I went back to Connecticut that night because I hadn't seen my parents and the inter- like the reception was on a Friday so I could spend the weekend there and then go back to Duke on the Sunday. And I got home and my mom was like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And she was like, what are you talking about? Like, do you know how much we just paid for school? And I was like, I don't care. I've been in school for 23 years at this point straight. I'm not doing it. And she was like, all right, 
you know what, I've always told you, like, I want you to have a career, not a job. If this is going to feel like a job for you, then don't do it, but go upstairs and figure out what you wanted to do. Well, all I wanted to do was go back to school. So I was like, I want to get my MBA. And they were like, the next three letters behind your name are going to be a J-O-B. So go back upstairs. (laughs) So I went back upstairs and I came back down and I thought like I had her. I was like, I want to do entertainment law, but you need a connection for that. And you don't have one. So it looks like I'm going to business school. And my mom was like, wrong. I do. And it turns out that my cousin is this man, Jerry Blair, who, um, I mean, like his resume can go forever and I don't want to do it disservice, so I won't run it down. (laughs) But like, you know, Columbia, like very at the precipice of bringing Latin music into the mainstream in the first go round in the 90s, like very influential. Also, like tangentially my cousin in the way that like every Jew from Connecticut is related to each other. And so he... I think my mom was very nice to him when he was a kid at overnight camp. And so that was what made him help me. He was like, I was this weird kid. Your mom was a lifeguard who was always so nice to me. So yes, I'll help you. And he set me up with an interview at TVT and I got the internship for the summer. Um, And TVT is now a defunct record label, but at the time was the biggest independent in the world. They had their own distribution. Um, it was like Little John and the Ying Yang Twins and Pitbull, um, but then also Seven Dunst, Nine Inch Nails started their career there. Um, it, In hindsight, it was a very controversial place to be working because they didn't pay royalties as much as I think they should have. Um, but that's probably why they're not around anymore. Um, but I worked there for probably three years and then um, couldn't do it anymore. It was like a revolving door. The staff was changing constantly. It just wasn't a great place to be. Um, and moved to Razor and Tie, which is Kids Bop and like Monster Hits of the 90s, and then had its own label as well that had um, a very like wide breadth of things from, you know, Dar Williams to kids music and everything, like Lori Berkner band and everything in between. Um, and so, and that's how I end up in entertainment. Eventually, in the course of it, I get introduced to Asher Roth, who brings me into management, um, and which leads me here. But it was it was kind of just following opportunities that came to me for so I didn't have to do what I didn't want to do. So as a kid growing up in Connecticut, what was that experience like? Do you wish you had grown up in a bigger city? Do you feel like you got so much experience, I guess, from just like living there before getting into this world? Um I love the way that I grew Like, I grew up in the most sheltered... Like, there are more house, are horses in my parents' town than there are people. Like, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. Our high school was three towns combined because the, all the towns are so little. There aren't enough kids for high school. Um, and so I think that in... I think my parents found good ways of, like, balancing it. It wasn't like we were there all the time. Like, we were still, you know, an hour and 20 minutes from Manhattan and in there, you know, once a month going to see a show or going to do something. So I feel like I got this very good balance of a very quaint, uh, like, picturesque, very stereotypical upbringing. And then also, like, the balance of there still being, like, culture and arts and diversity in my life that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. But my parents definitely had to make the effort to make sure that I saw those things. Yeah, 100%. So, I mean, you grew up in a city, and we both grew up in Connecticut. But when you transitioned from high school to college, do you feel like you got a lot of value out of going to college or no? I loved my college experience. Um, I mean, I think that it's not – I think that I grew up in a time where it was – like, there wasn't a choice to not go to college. Like, it it, – especially where I grew up. It wasn't – 
when I went started working with Scooter, it was like unheard of that he hadn't graduated. Like I didn't even know how I was going to tell my parents. And now it's so commonplace. It's ridiculous. So it was a very, as weird as it sounds, because I'm not that old, but it was a different time. And that like, I, I never even contemplated a scenario where I wasn't going to end up at college. Um, so do I know if it's for everyone? No. But for me personally, I think that I was so undecided and there were so many things that I didn't know yet and didn't understand yet that I needed to learn there. Um, also just little things that like I grew up in public schools and then went to a private college. I didn't understand like even the difference in that mentality. Like there, there was so much of the world that I hadn't seen and didn't understand yet. And so I feel like college gave me like the chance to pop the bubble, but like not step out yet and like have this little four year interim where I started to figure it out. And then like, let's be honest, I then extended it another three years and went to school even longer because I wasn't ready yet. But I'm sure, but there are people who are ready to graduate and go. And so I think it's definitely a very personal choice. Do you feel like you found that from college? I don't I didn't know. Go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I, I went to USC and I loved it. I felt as though it was perfect for me given that I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. Um, and I also did a five-year, just added a minor my senior year. My parents were thrilled. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think I think it just is kind of case by case. And as Allison mentioned, it feels though now is so different from back when, you know, naturally when our parents were growing up, when she was growing up, just generation by generation, you didn't go to college. I, I know some of your friends also didn't, so... So were your parents supportive then of you going to college? Do you think I, if you had been like, I don't want to go, they would have cared? Um, I feel like I'd still be grounded if I said I didn't want to go. But I think it's also a reflection of the fact that, like, figured they had no choice. Like, their parents were kids of the Depression. They, you know, the both of their dads fought in World War II, came back and went to school immediately after because they, like, saw the other side of it if they didn't go to school, what the future was going to look like. And so they had this, like, very ingrained, you're going to go to school, it doesn't matter mindset. Um, and so I think that they would have lost their minds if I didn't go to school. But I also don't think that I'm the type of person that would have been ready to go. At eight, like, I was a young 18-year-old. Right. So I think I needed it, for sure. Um, and I had so much fun. So, like, for that reason also, I wouldn't want to not have had those times. Something I feel like I adore about you so much, and I know I've only met you twice, we were introduced by somebody who signed me at Radio Disney, and he's, like, your biggest fan. I love him. Uh, but, you know, you are incredibly grounded and humble for somebody who is so... At the, you, like, run this world. You run this city, this industry. And that's so kind of unique to find in entertainment. So do you think that growing up on the East Coast in this small town, for kids who are listening or anyone who might, you know, be growing up in a small town, is like, I'm never going to, you know, get out of it. I'm never going to break out of this mold. Do you feel like that has influenced where you are today? Um, I think that... I never expected to do something where it would be impactful for anyone other than me. And so I don't even necessarily see it as being other than that right now. Like it, I, I appreciate that like the things that I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis ripple through pop culture. But at the same time, it's like in five years, no one's going to remember who I am. So I shouldn't be arrogant about it. Like, so I don't know how much of it came from growing up and how much of it comes from just like seeing the reality of it all. And we also, I, Scooter and I had a very unique entrance to all of this in that like 
I remember we turned around at a newsstand and Justin was like standing between us in a, in, when we were still like flying coach on, uh, when he was still flying coach on like commercial planes back at the beginning of his career. And we were at like a Hudson News in an airport and we turned around and he was like every magazine. And I was like, what have we done? It was like things moved so fast that we didn't have time to take a second and take stock of what was going on around us. And so and to a certain extent, that's still what's going on. We haven't slowed down. So like, I would love to think that it's that I'm that grounded, but I think it might be also that I'm that busy um, because figured like everyone's ego eventually gets yeah. the better of them. But thus far, I feel like I haven't lifted up my head long enough to look around and see what's going on. And hopefully that doesn't change until I'll get bored if it changes. If I have time to look around and like figure out exactly the impact of what I'm doing, then I'm not working hard enough. So five years ago, if someone had said that you would be where you are now, or even 10, 12 years ago, what would you have thought? I would have had no idea how it happened. would happen because I still don't necessarily know how it happened. Um, I feel like I've just been, like, working hard to do the best job that I can do. And apparently, like, it's something that I do well, but it I feel like I'm still learning it every day. We're, we work in an industry that changes so quickly, um, and the metrics of success are completely different than they were when I started 10 years ago. Um, and to be honest, like where I have these conversations with Justin Bieber all the time because like the metrics of success, even since the last time he released, which was three years ago, have changed so dramatically in just a three year period. So I'm also learning it all the time. So it's like, even once we have a moment where we're super impactful, everything changes by the time it's the next one. So you can't rest on your laurels anyway. I want to back up a sec, too, because you said the word manager, and mm -hmm. obviously we in this room know what that means, and most people in entertainment do, but how do you exactly define what you do for people who are listening, who might be from the Connecticut of the world? How do you define what I do? Um, or, like, what is an entertainment manager? An entertainment manager is a lot of things. You wear a lot of hats. Um figure our company is a little bit different in that it started in management but has still moved into has since moved into having a label and a film and TV arm and a tech arm like we've gone everywhere um and so my responsibilities have changed but as the management piece is you're you kind of have to be like the jack of all trades and the master of none. You have to understand everything that's going on with an artist in their career. It's about having the strategy to start it. It's about building it from there. It's about being really fast on your feet and being able to capitalize on opportunities because I feel like that is the defining feature between the, the like the f defining factors for a good manager versus a bad manager or how fast you are on your feet because something is going to happen every day that you can jump on top of and boost your artist profile and either you catch it and you run with it or you don't a and B your ability like how much of a backbone do you have because it you have to be honest with them they they are surrounded by people who most of the time are telling them how great they are all day long. And so being able to have the the wherewithal and the confidence in your relationships with your clients to be honest with them and give them true guidance and be a real confidant to them is a really important piece of the job. I think there are a lot of people who who manage without that piece and it's reflected in when their artists do something just really wild and then are shocked by the, by the response that they get that people weren't happy with it. It's ultimately every artist is exactly that an artist and they're going to make their own decisions about their career, but it is your job to give them the best advice that you can and line it up for them as well as possible for them to go knock them down and really win. 
Do you attribute all of these learned skills to kind of taking it day by day and learning as you go? Or would you say that it's potentially something that you might have learned in college or law school? Oh, I we are making this up as we go along. Like <laughs> I'm I remember- obsessed with you <laughs> <laughs> even more now. <laughs> I literally remember the first time Scooter called me and was like, I need you to advance a show. And I was like, I don't know what that means. And I remember like trying to Google advance a show. And then like <laughs> I took out like whatever book I was reading about the music industry at the time and tried to figure out what advancing a show meant. And then I realized like it's not written anywhere. Like I had it, I had to go like speak to, I had to use my connections and the relationships that I had to go speak to someone to figure out what it meant and what I actually had to do. And I eventually figured it out. Um, but it since has become like a rule that I make with our interns, with our assistants, with junior managers that like, you have to try to reinvent the wheel first yourself. I will correct you. I will never let you go rogue, but like, you've got to try to figure it out yourself first because like, A, there might be a better way to do it than the way that we've been doing it the whole time. And someone else might figure that out. And B, if there's not, you still have to try to figure it out. Like I learned so much in making those mistakes that I think that other people need to do the same. What is the advance at a show? It's like literally plugging in a microphone, Mm -hmm. like telling them what equipment to have, sending like the rider through for what needs to be in the dressing room. Like it's basic, basic stuff. I just didn't know what the term meant. Um, And so, but I had to go figure it out. And I remember that being like such a a lesson learned at the end of the day. And SB Projects now has how many employees? I don't even know. Um, I feel like we probably have in the like the high 30s, low 40s. Um, there's an office in New York, an office in Nashville, the LA office, our managers are all over the place. Um, there are a ton of clients. Um, it's a very different company than Scooter and I in a hotel room as it began. Wow. It's weird. (laughs) So, um, what was I going to say? I wanted to ask, uh, more about how you actually even met Scooter. Cause Mm -hmm. I know you told us off like kind of the camera, the interview, that story, but that's kind of unique. And that is... For those who don't know, he started the college. It was the How I Something in College, Asher Roth. Oh, so right? Scooter goes back before that. So Scooter used to be the head of marketing um, for So So Deaf um, back in like the Usher Confessions days. And before that, he was a club promoter in Atlanta, which is how he met Jermaine Dupree. Um, and then when he and Jermaine parted ways, he signed Asher Roth. He signed him to a production deal, um, which basically means he was going to go find him a record a record deal and be the, the intermediary there, um, which Scooter did and delivered, and that locked Asher into the production deal. Um, but I Love College hadn't been produced yet. It was, like It was not a thought in Asher's head yet when I met them. I met Asher after he recorded, I want to say he recorded a remix of... Little Wayne's A Millie, I think. <laughs> what a That's song. Ever, I know. Yeah. I think that that was the remix that, like, I first got sent on him. I can't be – I don't remember if it was that or, like, this random original that never got put out. But I was like, this kid's ridiculous. I was sent it by a friend from Duke who was then at Emory for law school in New Asher in Atlanta. Um, and he was already signed to Scooter. The kid who was the mutual friend was in law school. And – 
claimed that Asher was asking him to be his attorney, which was not true. Um, and he, but if you're going to try to practice law as a law student, which I do not recommend to anyone because you don't know what you're doing, <laughs> but for those people who do it, they have to get an attorney to agree to supervise them. So I got the call asking if I would supervise this kid, and I was like, no, <laughs> like I'm a lawyer at a label A, I don't do artist representation. B, even if I did, any kid that's stupid enough to leave their very established lawyer and go hire you, law student, is not someone smart enough that I want to work with them. But I'll go meet with him and tell him he's ruining his life. So he came to New York. I was living in New York. We met. Um, Scooter was with him because Asher, as I said, had no intention of hiring this kid and thought that I was a crazy person and didn't know what we were meeting about. So Scooter was there as, like, protection. Um, Scooter was so wildly obnoxious in this meeting that I really didn't like him. But, like, I now know that it was him, like, trying not to talk about any business because he didn't know who I was or what we were meeting about, which reasonable, good protection, Scooter. And, um... I really liked Asher in the meeting, even though Scooter and I didn't, like, gel right away. And so I emailed Asher on the side that was like, listen, sounds like your head's on straight. You're not going to let a law student represent you. But if you ever need anything, let me know. And so he would send me records through just because we had similar musical tastes, just asking for opinions. Um, that was probably in August. And then in November, I got a call that he had, like, functionally run away from Atlanta and could I give him a call. We met. He had me, like, look at all of his contracts because he was upset about some things. And I basically told him the stuff that's going on isn't anything contractual, but you need an advocate that's just on your side. Um, hire a manager. And he was like, that's good advice. Went home, showed up on my doorstep the next day, asked me to be his lawyer. I said no. Um, just and wait, where are you living at this I'm point? I'm living in the Caroline in Manhattan at 23rd okay. and 6th oh. in like a one-bedroom converted apartment into two bedrooms um, with my two dogs. And so I was like packing up my two dogs to bring them home on Metro North to see my parents <laughs> and because it's Thanksgiving. And I was like, no. And Asher was like, just think about it. Like maybe we'll really get along well. Like just think about it. So I was like, all right, I'll think about it. And I'm my mom's big saying my whole life has been to follow the river. She's like, don't go against the current, just follow the river. Everything will end up where it's supposed to be. And so when this opportunity came, she's like, just go with it. You really are unhappy in your job. Try it. And I was like, I'm not going to do it. Like a friend introduced us. I feel weird about the whole situation. And while I'm having this conversation with my mom, he is with his mother, who is a yoga teacher and like an empath and a tarot card reader, and she does a tarot card reading. And the tarot card reading says that I'm supposed to be his manager somehow. I'm not really sure. And he calls me back again and says, will you manage me? And I said, no. And he said, just think about it. And I thought about it. My parents talked me into doing it. And I said, okay, well, I'm not doing it without Scooter because he is the one that's in control of everything. He is the production company and he very much wants to be in this role. So I'd much rather partner with him. And so Scooter and I sat down and it was this very contentious relationship in the beginning. Like Asher sat in between us because he brought us both in separately and he would play us like divorced parents. Like one of us would say no and he'd go to the other one and be like, they can't get it done. Will you say yes? And both of us were like eager to please because we were like new managers. And so we wouldn't confer with one of each with one another and we'd end up in like at each other's throats. Um, but as all this was going on, Asher really, I think, realized that what we wanted to do, which was you know, make him the biggest thing on the planet. Asher wanted to start a revolution. It was like a very different thing than what we were gunning for. Mm. And so Scooter ended up, um, Asher rather ended up firing me. I feel like a hundred times, like I've never been fired for, from Why? a job except that job. Um, cause I'm like the most type A person and mm -hmm. he is 
the least type A person. And so literally we would like get in a van in the morning and I didn't know how to manage yet. So like I wouldn't adjust to him. I would expect him to almost adjust to me. And I would, I would like get in the van in the morning and like get in his face and be like, all right, so this is our schedule for the day. And he'd be like, just tell me where I'm going right now. Like, I don't want to know what we're doing for the rest of the day. I want to get through what we've got to get through. And then around 1130, we can talk about what the rest of the day looks like. And like, I just didn't, I didn't know this stuff yet. Um, and so it just wasn't a great fit. But in the meantime, Scooter and I are realizing that we work really well together. And so what ended up ultimately being the last time that Asher fired me was the day that Michael Jackson died. So I'll never forget what day it was because mm. it all kind of like came down at once. Um, and Scooter, I was like on the floor of my hotel room in the Empire Hotel in New York, hysterical. And Scooter came in and he was like, get up. I got this kid. And the kid was Justin. Um, and Scooter and I had fought so much that everyone in Scooter's life had like was warning him against it. They were like, you are going to be miserable. She's not going to want to listen to you. But like we ended up working much better in this capacity than we did when we were trying to work against each other. And it's been great ever since. So at this point, he didn't have a ton of clients. He had Asher Roth at the time. Um, he had just signed a, like a 12-year-old Justin Bieber. Um and then he had this rapper. I don't even know if Cato was still signed. He had this rapper in Atlanta, this kid Cato, who was this really nice kid. It just never took off. But it was really mainly Justin and Asher at this point. What would you say like makes talent? I Scooter makes fun of me. I call it sparkly. It's like they either sparkle or they don't. Like it. It's it's this like intangible. I like always rub my fingers together. Like it. It it's like this level of charisma that like very few people on this earth have, but when you have it, you have it. Um, and it's it's undeniable. It's like you can I remember like a and I'll be very honest in saying that Asher also has it in this like very, very intense way. Um, but we would be at, on set um, with Asher and like a 12-year-old or 13-year-old Justin would walk on and no one had any idea who he was at this point in time. And he would just like go into the kitchen and start singing and the whole crew would be in the kitchen watching Justin sing. And I'd be like, what is going on here? Um, so like he just has it. Like he he had this ability as like a very young kid of being so fearless and unintimidated by everyone around mm -hmm. him. Like, the, Scooter tells a story all the time about how the first time he flew him down to Atlanta, his only thing was, if we see Usher, you cannot sing for him. And Justin saw Usher in the parking lot of a studio and ran up to Usher and just started singing, you've got it bad to him. Like, he, nothing scared him, nothing intimidated him. And, like, he was, it was like he was born to do this and he was going to do this at any cost. So, I mean, it's, it, it really is something you're born with, as weird as that sounds. Right. Um, it, it Like, you're sparkly or you're not. Um, and I think a lot of that also comes from, like, having the confidence in your talent that you that an artist needs to have. Like, you need to be – it's a mean world out there, and people mm -hmm. say really, really, really foul things regardless of if they're true or not, regardless of if it's based in fact. And you have to have the wherewithal and the confidence in yourself as an artist – to not be worried about the negative things that people are saying and know that you're making the art that you want to make in the way that you want to make it and people are going to do with it what they will. Um, and the ability to do that and kind of block out all the noise around that is is impossible. So, you know, you, you have to be born with that. So you guys are then, he he's now fired you, Asher, as a mm -hmm. manager, but you weren't technically, I guess at this point, like a 
manager. You didn't know too much about management. Knew nothing. So then he brings Justin Bieber in the room. And what happens now over the course of the next six years? Um, Justin and I really didn't get along at first because figure I didn't work for him. Everyone else other than Scooter was, you know, either like staff that was hired like as security or like Rygood was his road manager. But in, in like the scheme of things, those people generally work for the artist. I worked for the management company. And so I was functionally brought in to say no all of the time. Um, and no teenager wants to hear no all of the time. Um, and so we really had a rough go of it in the beginning um, because there was this sort this sense of like, I want to do what I want to do. And me being the person being like, I am here to not let you do those things. So sorry. Um, and then it was almost like he attributes it to me getting engaged and he thinks that I got much nicer after I got engaged. <laughs> but if you ask my husband, I think he would say the opposite. Um, <laughs> So he, but I think it was just like him growing up and like this, like very, our relationship got very easy around the time he turned 17. I think he realized that like, I wasn't there to like frustrate his purposes, that I wanted him to do the things that he wanted to do. I just wanted him to do them in like a reasonable and safe way. Um, and we finally like clicked and now it's, you know, he's my family. Um, but it was, it was a weird, it was weird. It was weird being like 27, 28 and like trying to like almost discipline a 14, 15 year old. Like we're not that far apart in age. Like I don't know what it is to be a parent. I'm still figuring out what it is to be a parent now because it's the first time I'm actually doing it for real. Um, and And so it was this very odd dynamic where, like, I knew I needed to come in with this sense of authority. But, like, I understood the world from his perspective. I wasn't 13 that long ago that, like, it it felt that foreign to me. And I was kind of like, I understand why he wants to do these things, but I also know why he can't. And so it was this – it was weird. It was a weird time in our relationship. I will mention that I also feel like why why do these kids and so many of these young people kind of go off the rails? Like what happens? And I think from an outside perspective, it's like they think all these crazy things about these talent. And I think that when you're in the industry and you realize that there's so much pressure on these young people, uh, that age between 12 to 16 and you are the at the forefront of seeing these kids and you're saying it right here like you know they are just trying to find themselves it's not like they're 21 so I guess just on a note for people who are on the outside to kind of be like a little bit kinder I don't know to some of these like it's very difficult it's impossible I mean like I can't imagine what it is like to be 16 and have no idea what you're doing in the first place and being as figured being six the experience of being 16 is the same regardless of how many people are watching you be 16 and so like being told at 16 years old that you're expected to be a role model for not only your peers and not only kids younger than you but also kids older than you when you're still trying to figure it out for yourself and every time you leave the house there are five million paparazzi taking pictures of you and every time you get a speeding ticket it's an international incident like Mm. these are normal mistakes that kids are supposed to get to make and to make them under the microscope of the public eye, it's Justin came up at a time I don't think that any of us understood because at the beginning of it, there wasn't Instagram. Twitter was like this new thing. He was the first artist to break off of YouTube. No one understood the the microscope he was going to live under. And even when you look at the other kids that have sort of made it through the other side, you're looking at like the Michael Jacksons and Justin Timberlakes of the world, but they were in a group. They were right. one of five. Like, that's a very big difference than being one of one. If if Justin Timberlake at 15 woke up and was exhausted, there were four other guys in the group that could go do that radio interview if he needed to sit that one out. If Justin Bieber at 14 woke up and was exhausted, he still had to get out of bed and do it because there was they didn't want to talk to me. 
So like it, he he really was alone in it in a way that no one had been before in that position. And no one understood the impact of the social media. We didn't even understand because we were, it was developing as he was, before that it was conventional paparazzi that was the issue. And it was discussions of, you know, Princess Diana and Paris and, and like overbearing and personal boundaries. But the idea of, uh, of a fan being able to sort of have that same impact, it wasn't a thing at the time. Right. No, it's fascinating. I mean, not to harp on this negativity component, but naturally this is something that you deal with day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Not only you as on an individual level, but also you working with these artists. Is there something that you tell them or advise them to do when they're going through these strenuous times? And then a follow-up to that question, what do you personally take home with you to, in order to cope cope with what with what you have to contend with every day? So for them, I feel like I say it all of the time, but I'm a very strong proponent of the very cliche statement that other people's opinion of you is none of your business. Like, you're not going to change it if it's based in emotion especially, which normally it is because figure from the perspective of a fan or a stan or a hater or whatever, (laughs) they don't know the whole situation. So, like, it's not based in anything logical. You're not going to be able to change the opinion. So, like, don't don't let it affect you because – it's none of your business functionally. It has no impact on your day. It has no impact on your life. You didn't do anything wrong, so keep it moving. Um, and I mean, I have the perspective of my kids, which makes a huge difference, which is, again, very cliche, but like it's taught me to really work much smarter and not necessarily with more time, but like in, with much less time and get my stuff done so that when I go home, it's like... I need to raise these people to not be the mean kids on the internet. So, like, that's what my attention needs to be focused on when I get home. Um, And I can't bring that stuff home with me because if I do, that's what they're going to learn. So, like, they they create this sort of, like, barrier. Like, sometimes I'll get home and, like, I sit in the garage for, like, a minute. My husband, like, Mm. will come downstairs and be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I can't face them yet. (laughs) Like, I got to collect it first and then I'll go upstairs just because, like, I don't want to walk in the house with that energy. I don't want to bring that to them. Like, they're five two and one like they're innocent I want them to remain innocent like I it's funny like they refer to Justin as Uncle Justin they don't watch his music videos I don't want them to realize who he is like I want the the innocence of their childhood to remain so it's I leave that stuff at home at work so that they can have a home life yeah it's crazy when you think about how many different facets of negativity and bullying can go on I know that's something that that you focus on a lot is the bullying component and just this cruel world that that kids can are growing up in and especially in entertainment I mean I want to talk about how because I'm, I'm really quite fascinated I know you are how you balance it all as a mom incredible and go on like tour I don't know how you do it but you know my husband stays home I don't get that much credit he does like he does God's work in this but like, you know at the, you are still a parent like there has to be a part of you sometimes that's like should I be there like what if your kids end up wanting to get into entertainment do you want oh, them oh no in- every time my kids go to sing I'm like so your mouth shut <laughs> sit down like, <laughs> like my husband was like Barrett has a solo in the spring play and I was like please ask them to take it away from him <laughs> like no thank you um but no I don't balance it all great there is no real balancing of it all like you you do the best that you can do and you know that that's the best that you can do like I I very lo- my husband and I talk about this a lot because when we had our third kid we finally got a nanny he refused up until that point um and he had a real tough time with it at first, but like you have to let go. If you're going to be a working parent, you have to let go of the idea that like things are going to be done your way. They're not like 
he does a hundred things a day that I'm like, why did you just do that like that? But like, I've learned to not say that anymore and keep it moving. Like my kids are alive. They're happy. They're healthy. No one turned blue today. We did it. We won the day and let's keep going. Like it, it, as long as we reach, we're, as long as we're on the same page in terms of who we want to raise, how we get there, I don't care anymore. Um, because I, I can't micromanage him and he has to feel as a competent, a parent as any stay at home mom does. So I've had to learn to bite my tongue there a lot, but it's fine. And my kids are great. Um, and I think that they get something really special that a lot of other kids don't get by their dad being the one that's home. Um, and then like the work of it, work of it all. I'm lucky that like I have clients that like kids and understand like Barrett, my son refers to Ariana as the princess. Um, and is obsessed with her and want, like, he came in the, my room on Saturday morning and was like, mommy, can we go see the princess? And I'm like, I think she's in Indianapolis. So no, (laughs) but we can see her next week. Like they, I have clients that don't mind when my kids come to work with me. Um, like I, Scooter is, runs a company that is family first for him, for me, for every employee, intern, everyone. Um, and so all of that makes a really big difference. I think that you, any person, when they're picking where they're going to work and what their life is going to be, has to figure out like what components of quality of life are the most important to them because something's got to give every time. You know, you are a parent yourself, but you're also one of the biggest decision makers of this world. Like, I feel like if you are trying to break into this, it's you or Scooter that people go to. So for people who are listening and it's their dream, whatever, like, how do you advise them? I mean, are you should you put a YouTube video out, like a song out? How do you make it nowadays, in your opinion? It's so hard. I think that it's, you know, 10, it's obviously 90% talent, but the last 10% is luck. Like, there's no, like, figure there are times we saw Calista Clark, who we signed recently, like, she showed up randomly in my Facebook feed. That's how I saw her. Someone from high school posted her video. Then, like, there's someone new that we that we're in the process of signing. That like someone we've known for years walked through the door. And then there's then there's times where like a label calls us and says that they found someone that they were going to sign, but do we want to manage it? And it wouldn't be signed to us as a label artist, but we'll just manage. Like that's how Ariana came through the door for us. Scooter saw a video was interested, and the label was interested in us getting involved as well. So, like it 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 all facets of ways but I mean like there is a certain component of it that's just luck I think the best advice I can give is to try everything and do it all to the best of your ability and that applies if you're going to try to be an artist or a manager or a marketing person or you know a radio promo person whatever it's going to be in this space that you're going to try to do like I feel like I eventually got here because I gave 150% at whatever the job was. When I was an intern in a legal department at TVT, I was like making spreadsheets that I was never expected to make just because like I wanted the job when I graduated. Like I was the last person out of the office every day. Like I, to a certain extent, still am. So like, I think it's also about like doing whatever it is that you're doing to the best of your ability and realizing that no job is too small because someone's watching everything that you're doing all of the time. Social media has created such a negative world, I feel like, too. I mean, there's obviously so much good for it, but also in the sense that there's this expectation that you will now post a video or you will post a picture and, like, you're going to be the next Justin Bieber or Cameron Dallas or any of these kids who have gone viral. But, I mean, it's not reality. You say yourself, like, you have to actually work and be the last person out of the office and intern. Where have things changed so drastically that people are like – 
the amount of kids I talk to, young people who are like, oh, I'm not going to do that for free. I'm like, you have no experience. You are nobody. <laughs> Work your ass off and then be like, I mean, it, I, I'm for sorry sure. to those of you who have been like, oh, I'm not going to do whatever I'm, you're asking for. But like, no, 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 no. It's not fair. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of that going around yeah. it seems these days. But I mean, I think it's that people, it's much easier to tell the tale. Like if you go and watch Never Say Never. Like, it looks like Justin put up a Chris Brown with you cover, and then the next day there were 500 kids at a radio station. Like, that is not at all what it was. Like, there was a long period of, like, hustling and grinding and him, like, sitting in Atlanta and, like, complaining that he was bored and wanting to get to work and things not being ready. Like, once things are ready to go, it goes. You can't slow it if it's going to happen. But, like, getting to that point, there's a lot of work, and there's a lot of work on the manager side to even get the label to pay attention because a lot of times a label signs something and then if it doesn't go right away, they kind of turn away from it because figure they're being pitched 500 other things the next day. So either you have to make them pay attention or they're not going to. Um, And so there's a lot like you have to believe in yourself more than anyone's going to believe in yourself and you have to be willing. Like it's ridiculous at the beginning. I still do things for free. I feel like to be like, I can do it. Do you want to pay me for it now? This podcast. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Come and on, I mean- aren't I going to get paid for this, guys? <laughs> no, but like, I feel like it's a lot about, it's funny because I was doing, uh, I went to a summit recently and I was talking to a bunch of other female founders um, and one very prominent company, um, their founder was talking to me about a different set of metrics that they created for their employees because of that new mindset the kids are having when they're coming out of school or whatever. That's like, it's not only about the work that you're doing, but how are you showing up and how are you interacting with your peers at work? And when you're finding problems at work, are you complaining about them or are you making like solution-based suggestions? Like things, things like that, because there does need to be this flip in the mentality because things do seem very easy. And sure, there are people that like, like, that it just happens for. I'm not going to pretend like there, but usually that stuff isn't rooted in anything and the bottom eventually falls out. Like the reality is that our clients have continued and not just our clients, but the artists that are working, it is a very, in a streaming economy in music. And I can only speak to it in music because I don't know other industries as well, but I think that it can be analogized to anywhere. And in music, it is a very easy thing to get a person to go into Spotify, type in three letters, find a record, and stream it. It is a very different thing to get them to open up a wallet and go buy a t-shirt or go buy a concert ticket or show up for you somewhere. They are two completely different things. Um, and as to be a successful working artist, you need them to do that second part. At a certain point, someone has to pay you for your art or you're not making any money or it's not a job, it's a hobby. And so, like... The, the thing to do that is that the human connection, that that work that people forget that's there, that is the part that gets you to that second step. That's what gets people to engage with you. That's what gets people to take pride in the work that you're putting in and putting your heart and soul into. And I think that that piece of it is integral regardless of if you're working in the mailroom at an agency trying to become an agent or you're trying to become an artist like those interpersonal connections that people miss in that work and people seeing you do that work is the most important part so that the bottom doesn't fall out because you might have the best idea ever that gets taken off but are you going to know how to execute it Mm. on the other side if you didn't do the work probably not and if you can't do that you're not going to end up 
with being the one get that gets the credit for the idea, if that makes sense. Of course. You was, yeah, what are you going to say? I was just going to say, speaking of the music industry, I mean, naturally from the point that you started working in the music industry to now, so much has changed. I mm -hmm. mean, the music streaming platforms, I don't, not, you know, it seems like tour isn't as big of a focus unless you're really big, um, that there are just so many different ways to access groups of people. Do you think that the music industry has changed for the better? I mean, naturally, it's still changing, but do you see this pro progression as being something that's positive? Yeah, I do think it's something that's positive. I think that it's really a remarkable time in music. I think that there's so many artists that can get out there without a label right now that that's really encouraging because I think that there are in like the music economy people like there are people who weren't serviced before because like music was so expensive to make and the stuff that was out there wasn't stuff that they loved um and now it's not as expensive to make because you really need like a MPC and a and a computer and you can get it done to a certain extent with a mic um, it won't sound like there's a, a 50 piece orchestra in there, but <laughs> right. like you can make a song. Um, and I think that, I think that that's really remarkable because it's allowing people to be creative, um, in ways that they couldn't before. And ultimately it's about art. Um, and so I think that that piece of it is, is really good, but I do think that the barrier to entry to it being a job and as a result is much higher. Right. Um, and, and I think that that becomes daunting for certain artists and maybe creates like sort of this like maybe I can't do it in a way that people didn't feel before so and it's also hard for every it makes it harder for every artist because there's so much more content out out there so like even for our superstars they have to be producing at like a record pace to keep giving people content because people are consuming stuff so quickly right um and so on one side of the coin that's great because they can do whatever it is that they want to do and experiment and try things and like actually get their fan feedback on it as opposed to it getting you know scrapped and 30 years later someone finding a Whitney Houston higher love vocal and giving it to Kaiga but on the other side of things it's it's that it's it's mass and it's not necessarily quality and kind of figuring out how to be the loudest voice when there are that many voices is is tough and you have to be really creative and I feel like I got I got a remix um on I don't care the other day that I was like this is so smart but I realized like it won't be usable by the time I'm ready to release another song because the idea's done now. And now I have to figure out how to be louder than that voice. So mm -hmm. I think it's good and it's bad. Um, and I think that things are still e evening out as everyone's seeing in terms of how writers get paid on the streaming and and master rights. Like the, on the, the actual business end of things, there's still certain things that have to be accommodated for because all of the contracts and all of the laws and all of the rules apply to a format that doesn't necessarily exist the way it used to anymore. So there's still pieces of it that I think are starting, still getting worked out. And so it's the Wild West in that regard, too. We'll go for about 10 more minutes to like cool. 12, 10, 12. Uh, but, you know, I feel like so much of what you do as well is kind of knowing the market, like the industry, like you said. I mean, I'm curious, do you get like both of you or anyone on your team tons of pitches and emails a day from kids who are like, want to be represented by you? And if you do or you don't, whatever. But when you're said, you, you know, how you even get that song or the 
person that's even the biggest person, like to get the music person or the bigger, like the agencies, whatever. I'm, yeah. I don't even understand this. Stuff. <laughs> but so for many professionals, the professionals. Uh, <laughs> but you you sign a bunch of people. Then yeah. you just mentioned a few new people who you've signed. So if you're getting a bunch of like emails from people, do you ever like open any of them Sometimes. and like listen? And I, and then when you go to sign somebody that you've never met, I mean, what is the process like? How do you decide who to sign? And then once you've signed, how many people realistically can an agency sign? It's a, so we have a rule in our company now that unless there is a junior manager in the building who is massively passionate about the project, we will not sign it. Because first and foremost, you need to have someone that is there in the trenches with you that believes in you. And like, I will be completely upfront that I don't have the time to do it the way that I used to anymore. Like there have been things that I've signed myself in the last few years. And so for those cases, like I am that person, but I then go find someone who is as passionate as I am and hire them to work that project because I can't be there 24-7. Um, but have I looked at un- like at an unsolicited demo? Sure. Do I do it often? Usually I don't have the time. Um, and usually it gets sent to like info at Scooter Braun and no one ever sees it. Um, so it it just totally depends. Like we we have signed people because we heard them singing on a street. We have signed people off of YouTube. We have signed people because they were they already had a record deal. So it it just totally depends. Um, but what I can say is that anyone that we have signed, or not anyone, but most of the time when we have signed you, by the time you we signed you, it was not the first time you hit us up. Mm. Like, it was the first time we probably saw it or the first time that it was, like, at the place where we were ready to take it somewhere. But, like, usually it's not the first time you walk through the door or the first time that I see a video or the first time that your name's mentioned, like, in our in our atmosphere that we that it's time. So, like, just because it's no the first time, don't quit. I was just going to say your day-to-day is obviously swamped. The responsibilities that you'd have range from philanthropy to this to that. I feel like we could go on and on about it. But that said, what would you say your favorite part of your job is and what would you say your least favorite part is? My favorite part of my job is definitely still like the like the basic management, like helping someone that is so talented and can do something that I just am not capable of doing do it to the best of their ability and getting it out there and making sure that people see it and hear it. Like, that is still my favorite. Like, I went to bed giddy tonight that Ari's Vogue was coming out today because, like, I knew how important it was to her and I knew what a great story it was. Like, those are still the things that, like, feed my soul as it relates to this job. Um, And the least favorite part of my job is probably delivering bad news, which is probably the same thing that most people would say. Um, Like, you grow to really care about the people that you work with, whether it's someone, you know, whether it's we're dealing with something on, like, the philanthropy side of the business and an initiative that we were trying to figure out how to do can't happen or telling a client that, like, a release didn't go their way or that they're not, like, that stuff because we don't work with people generally that don't give their all. And so knowing that someone committed the way that someone has to commit to do the things that we're doing and telling them that that didn't pan out, I think is still my least favorite part of my job. I'm much better at doing it than I once was. I used to like avoid the confrontation of it like it was no one's business. Now I'm fine to do it, but like would I prefer to not have to? Yeah, for sure. On that note, what is the timeline for 
you know, for you signing somebody or anyone in entertainment in terms of, especially in music, you mentioned like a few people you've signed. And is there a point where you're like, you know, you're, this is like, this is failing. You're not going to really be anybody <laughs> or I mean, tr- I'm, I'm trying to yeah, think no. because- we haven't ever really like dropped anyone like that, to be totally honest that we've signed. Um, we're really like figure like, we don't really leave our clients. Our clients don't really leave us. We, But we also don't sign in bulk. I think that that's what's different between us and, like, the traditional record labels. Like, when we sign something, we sign something because we want to release it. When we sign something, we sign it because we believe in it. Um, and so, like... Scooter will run it something. Scooter will run into a brick wall a thousand times if he thinks that it eventually he'll break it down. Like that that saying that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing twice and expecting a different outcome. Scooter's the most insane person I've ever met. (laughs) So like he, if he believes in you, he will back you forever. Um, And I think that that's a really remarkable. He puts his money where his mouth is in that regard, Um, and that's a really remarkable trait that he has that a lot of music executives don't. Um, so I thankfully don't really have those conversations much. Um, but usually when it happens, it's because you guys either, you want different things or you have a different vision for the artist than they have for themselves. Um, and we also don't hold people hostage. So if, and when the time comes that they're saying that what you're trying to do isn't what we want to do, we usually are like, all right, then fine. If if we don't see the vision, we're not going to try to force anyone into a box. It's their art. Um, and, and we find a way to, to wrap it up, but we will pivot. Like, I mean, a good example is push baby. Like we allowed them to completely reinvent themselves. Like Jake is doing it his way on his terms this time. Um, and we'll see where it goes, but like, I'm happy to give him the opportunity because I believe in his talent and I believe in his vision and I would listen to him sing me the phone book. And so we'll see where it goes. So we really, I just want to help them do what they want to do. And sometimes it's not, it doesn't make sense. But even in those instances, we'll try to find a way for it to make sense or to bring them to someone that can help them do it the way that they want to do it if it's not the right fit for us anymore. What is the end goal for you personally? I mean, you're already at the top. Like from the outside, you're already the highest position you could be at. What's my end goal? I don't know what my end goal is because this was never my goal. (laughs) Um, So it's a hard thing to say, but I think ultimately it's to not be bored. Like if this job gets boring, then I'm going to be in trouble. Um, but it's, it's just like slightly impossible. Yeah. I think it would be tough. Yeah. <laughs> I would, I'd like welcome a boring day. I just don't want to be bored. Um, but I think that I don't know what the end goal is. Um, I think that ultimately like I love music. I now have seen how the sausage is made and I still will eat it. So that makes a very big difference. Um, so I'm not looking to leave it anytime soon. I like I joke all the time that like you know when I set out to do well when I set out to do a job I thought I was going to be a constitutional lawyer so clearly that's not a road I'm following anymore um but like I joke all the time that like I want to be a music supervisor for film and TV maybe I go to there when this is all said and done um I imagine that there'll be a time that my body will not want to do these like 18 hour back and forth New York trips anymore and like then I'll have to reevaluate but for Right now, like, I love my clients. They don't look like they're slowing down. I love working with Scooter. And, you know, he's only looking to do more bigger things. So I think we keep pushing for right now. You're so inspiring. (laughs) My last question, and I don't know if you have any more after this one, but, I mean, 
can you, like, can somebody do it all? Can you have kids and be at the top and do everything and also have a normal social life and not lose your mind? Um, yes and no. You can do it all if your definition of doing it all changes drastically. Mm. Um, like, I don't do near – I do probably – like work I have to do it all because that's what I get paid to do but at home I probably do 20% of it but that's the 20% that I can do and then in terms of like socially we left LA like I moved to the South Bay because I didn't want to be in the mix anymore and once I got home I wanted to be home like there has to be an emergency once I like cross through El Segundo (laughs) there's got to be an emergency to get me out of the house again so it's like we've created this like little life in this little bubble a little bit away Um, and I don't really like talk about what I do at work much when I'm at home, um, and try to keep that totally separate. Like my son at school, when they ask what he, what I do, he says I work at the concert, but he has no idea what I do. (laughs) So he can't out me. Um, cause I could be like taking tickets at Staples. No one knows. And, um, or like maybe a roadie, maybe they think I'm cool enough, but like no one actually knows what I'm doing. So I think that it's all, but there are people that do this and love that, like love being in the mix and that's why they do it. So I think it's, like I said, I think it's about redefining what it all means. Um, and being willing to accept that your best is good enough. And then yes, you can. Well, from constitutional lawyer to, <laughs> to I don't even like mega the, star. My mom's music. like, "What does she do?" I'm like, "Do you know Scooter Ring? Yeah, yeah, I know." So she like owns the music industry. I don't get it. Like a manager, she, my mom's a nurse, so she's like, "I don't, I don't get it." I'm like, "Mom, like everyone you know that you've ever heard of, I know she's like 70 years old. My mom <laughs> and acts like 900, but I'm like anyone that you would see in a magazine, this woman has created. Oh, that's super cool! I'm gonna go watch my show now. But you are the top of the top. Thank you oh for my spending gosh, the thank time. You for having you. Me. Where can everyone find you? On social media, uh, my Instagram is at Allison Jamie K. My Twitter, I think, is Allison K. I don't use it that much anymore, but you are welcome to relook at my Instagram <laughs> posts on my Twitter. Um, and yeah, that's that's where it is. The company is at SB Projects with an underscore in between the B and the P. And that's that's us. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning into episode eighty. I hope you loved this story. I Congratulations think- on eighty episodes. That's significant. Thank you. I <laughs> wish I had been a hundred because you would have been better for hundred. But eighty is still a number. But eight's a good luck number in the I Jewish. I take eight. Yeah, and it's infinity. Religion. I'll take it. Yeah, let's right. do that. Well, that's one. And I think that both of these girls are a testament to the fact that you can literally just never give up, and you have gone in so many different directions to end up where you are now. So you're right. You're always constantly redefining that word normal and for those of you who want to find out more about the podcast and myself you can go to at alexa underscore curtis as well as um listen to fearless every day which comes out every single friday on radio disney and you guys can find alex on social media wow at, i get a plug of course yes. you get a plug. oh my gosh at alips a-l-l-i-p-s well you guys live life unfiltered and i'll see you back next week bye bye, bye.